Welcome to Vineyard Hopkinton. As we follow Jesus together, we experience the Holy Spirit, create a multicultural community, and pursue kingdom of God justice. Um, as we start this morning, guys, question for you. Um, when was your last argument? This morning? Yesterday? You know, we have plenty of things to argue about. Uh, life is not easy and simple. We have our way of doing things which we may consider uh, better than your way of doing things. Um, We're like, this is how I do it. This is how you do it. We have lots to disagree about, lots of things that we can have differences and arguments over. They say that uh, every argument has two sides, and they're usually married to each other. Um. But we have plenty that we can disagree and argue about. And today we're going to look at some of the divisions and disagreements in the church uh, in Corinth. And, you know, we don't actually know what these disagreements are about. The writer of this Bible passage, Paul, he's kind of like the the bishop um, uh, to the church in Corinth. Um, he tells us that the church has divisions, but he doesn't even tell us what these divisions are are about. Paul, how are we going to know whose side to take if you don't even tell us what the arguments are about? But Paul doesn't feel like getting into specifics about the argument. He does not tell us. And people have speculated about what these divisions were about. We've tried to uh, give guesses about what these divisions were about for a long time. Paul doesn't want to say because It doesn't matter. There will always be things to argue about. There will always be differences. There will always be reasons for disunity. Young or old, you can always find something to argue with your mom about. You can always find something to complain about at work or school. I can think of about eight things that Stephen and I could be in active argument mode over right now if we tried. There will always be reasons for disunity. There will always be a higher reason for unity. And so we're going to talk about unity today under Jesus. And it's our prayer that we are united not, not, you know, in sameness or conformity, but that we are united under the loving leadership of Jesus today. So let's pray. And Jesus, as we come to your word, Lord God, we, we just give you our minds and emotions. We give you our hearts and our feelings. Jesus, would you be the one who has say in our life, Lord God? Would you speak truth to our hearts today? Where we are carrying in hurt, Jesus, we give that to you. Where we have things that we need forgiveness for, Jesus, we seek your forgiveness. Lord God, would our hearts be melted to you, and would our hearts be softened to each other today? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to be talking about the church in Corinth. And uh, let's start with a little bit of their story, their history, see uh, what this community has been through. Uh, It says, Then Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. 
There he became acquainted with a Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had been recently arrived from Italy with his wife Priscilla. They had left Italy when Claudius Caesar deported all Jews from Rome. Paul lived and worked with them, for they were tent makers, just as he was. Each Sabbath found Paul at the synagogue, trying to convince the Jews and Greeks alike. And after Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul spent all his time preaching the word. He's getting co-workers, maybe some funding. Um, He testified to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed and insulted him, Paul shook the dust from his clothes and said, Your blood is upon your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to preach to the Gentiles. Jesus, you know, gave his disciples permission to to follow kind of this model a bit. Then he left and went to the home of Titus Justus, a Gentile who worshipped God and lived next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, and everyone in his household believed in the Lord. So things don't go so well at the synagogue, so they go one door over. I'm like, you might want to look, like, how about the next block, maybe? Um, But many others in Corinth also heard Paul, became believers, and were baptized. Things are going well. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision and told him, don't be afraid. Speak out. Don't be silent. I don't think he was being silent, but it's confirming. Don't be afraid. Keep, keep going, for I'm with you. No one will attack and harm you, for many people in this city belong to me. So Paul stayed there for the next year and a half, teaching the word of God. But when Gallio became the governor of Acacia, some Jews rose up together against Paul and brought him before the governor for judgment. They accused Paul of persuading people to worship God in ways that are contrary to our law. But just as Paul started to make his defense, Galileo turned to Paul's accusers and said, listen, you Jews, if this were a case involving some crime, I would have reason to accept your case. Since it's merely a religious question, words, Jewish laws, take care of it yourself. I refuse to judge such matters. He threw them out of the courtroom Then the crowd grabbed Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and beat him right there in the courtroom. But Gallio paid no attention. This Roman legal system that prided itself on law and order is really getting out of hand. Paul spent a year and a half there, a long time in Corinth, because he was invested in what was a larger, growing but also kind of turbulent church community there. You know, if we had to kind of visualize the highs and the lows, kind of chart uh, uh, the the church in Corinth, their story. Um, So it starts out, Paul just gets these these two co-workers. It's just them. It's a small thing. Um, And then... Timothy and Silas join him. He gets some money. He's working full time. The thing's really ramping up a little bit. Then they hit a real low point with the synagogue. A lot of frustration, insults. Paul's just done. They move right next door. Folks really start joining the congregation. It's growing. It's going well. Paul has a vision of really moving forwards. He's encouraged. He's really strengthened in his calling. 
So he has longevity there, really a year and a half, good amount of time to really invest in this community. Then, of course, uh, there's some significant controversy that really rile up a a congregation, some real uh, legal trouble. But thinking about, like, the lows, in um, in verse 6, you know, he says, I am just, like, done with, you know, preaching the gospel to this, you know, a Jewish, Jewish community. In verse 6, he, he speaks a, a reality, a actuality, but it's not really his deepest truth. You know, Paul will continue preaching to the, the Jews again. In fact, about 13 verses later, we will find him again in a synagogue preaching to Jews. So in my Bible, you don't actually even have to turn the page to find him again in, in a synagogue. But he's hit a wall. He's hit a low place and, and real, real frustration. Paul got really frustrated with God's people, as God himself does sometimes. And it's a moment of kind of the co-laboring, the human and the the divine, where we really see a lot of the human side coming out. Willie James Jennings, a theologian, says that Paul has joined God's own loving struggle with God's people. To be within the prophetic is to be for a moment in synergy with God, sharing in the full measure of the temptation to lose patience with God's people, as we see God do, you know, Exodus, he's like, this is so frustrating, but yet intoxicated with the divine longing for the creation. This is the longing that drove Jesus to the cross, the love for the church that drives us forward. You know, Willie James Jennings is one of the preeminent theologians. Learned a lot from him, incredibly um, thoughtful and way smarter than I am. But I do wonder about this a little bit and think, like, is this a little bit of a rosy picture here to say, like, oh, this is like a lover's quarrel, and every relationship goes through through highs and lows, and you only fight because you care. But I do think also there's, this really is, is true. That from the beginning in this community, there's this dynamic of opportunity and frustration. There's a feeling of yay and also yikes. There's, there's opportunity and threats. There's growth and, and fears. I think this is indicative of a lot of growing, thriving, diverse churches. We can get overly confident in the good times, think we got it made, and also overly stressed or anxious in the presence of threats. Corinth was, as I said, one of the larger churches, um, about 100 to 150 individuals, which may not sound ginormous to us, um, but based on, you know, where they gathered and how they gathered, um, that was a pretty good size. A lot of the other congregations in the New Testament were 50 to uh, 100 folks, and I, they were larger and expanding. And I think, honestly, this opportunity-threat dynamic is typical of places where the kingdom of God is expanding. They say that revivals are a mix of dirt and divinity, divinity and, and dirt. So Paul and Silas and Peter and Priscilla and Aquila, you know, they're chugging along, you know, preaching full-time, gathering, building and they are facing a lot of resistance in the synagogue. 
And Paul says, you know what? Working with this Jewish community, you know, and he himself is Jewish, you know, it's just too much for me. I'm out. It's understandable in some ways. But is this what God is saying? You know, God doesn't abandon anyone. God himself was abandoned on the cross. God is a home for those who are uh, uh, abandoned. God doesn't leave. God doesn't give up. What does God say? We've heard what Paul said. What does God say about the church? What we say about the church needs to sound a lot more like what God says and less like what people say. You know, I've noticed in the last couple of years kind of a rise of a category of uh, literature or uh, publications, um, kind of like Christian failure tabloids. I don't really know how to categorize this genre. Um, Christian, like, watchdogs who take, you know, maybe very real failures and, and tragedies that need to be talked about, but also you know, just other churches you disagree with or personal failings of pastors or failings of groups and just really push and promote and publicize it. Guys, we really know it is not edifying to be reading the celebrity tabloids. We should also not be reading the Christian failure tabloids. I think of um, my pastor from growing up in, in Connecticut. He was here one time, preached. Stephen and I have a good relationship with him. And, you know, expectedly, we often talk about church together. And uh, we were talking one time, and, you know, some current trend came up. And, you know, I stated an opinion about how this was not a good thing. Stephen said something. And then he says, you know, Sarah... I've noticed the same thing. And it just, it really, it just saddens me. It's not, Jesus is not being honored in that. And then he got like a little choked up and emotional about it. And it was, it was just such a corrective to me. I said, that, that is what I should be doing instead. I have a tendency to complain or, you know, pontificate not to cry. And he was just deeply saddened because he loves the church like Jesus does. So, so what is Jesus's perspective? You know, I think about stories like um, Matthew or Mark. In Mark chapter 9, um, John said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone using your name to cast out demons, but we told him to stop because he wasn't following us. Don't stop him, Jesus said. No one who performs a miracle in my name, right? You're performing a miracle in the name of Jesus will soon be able to speak evil of me. Anyone who is not against us is for us. If anyone gives you even a cup of water because you belong to the Messiah... I tell you the truth, that person will surely be rewarded. You know, what John says here, it kind of, it seems conscientious, careful. Maybe it seems like, you know, a really good idea. But John didn't say, 
you know, we saw someone casting out demons uh, in your name, and we told him to stop because he wasn't following you. You know, later on, we'll see in Acts, someone who's trying to use Jesus' name as like this, like, magical incantation without following Jesus. He's following Jesus. He's not following us. The NLT translates it, um, well, it says, uh, we told him to stop because he isn't part of our group. You see, the disciples had not had probably their best day. So let's recap their day. You know, they had gotten up, you know, had you know, some nice whole roast fish for breakfast. That's the good part of their day. Think like salmon and cream cheese bagels, put on their sandals, headed out to do some work. Start by trying to cast out a demon. Doesn't go so well. They can't do it. They walk over to the next place they're heading to, arguing about whose fault it was that it didn't work, and inversely, who's the greatest? Jesus says, what you talking about? Oh, nothing. But, but Jesus, did you hear that there are other people out there casting out demons, and they're not even a part of our group? So they're at a stress point. They failed. They couldn't do something. And then there's these other folks out there who are doing it successfully who aren't part of their group. Their concern isn't about Jesus. They've been through some anxiety, some pressure. It's about their own insecurity. Are we about Jesus or are we about our own insecurities? You know, I think it's good to be just really specific and clear about this. You know, for example, like, you know, the Catholic Church. You know, the Catholic Church, you know, we have some real theological differences, but ultimately, you know, thumbs up. The Catholic Church has preserved Christian faith throughout the vast majority of Christian history. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit following Jesus Clearly, now, not following us, not part of our own group, but if someone is following Jesus, that's the point. If someone is following Jesus. You know, I do think that there are many churches out there that I can look at and have some real differences with, but say, you know, maybe not everyone will come to a church like this. I am glad that there are churches out there uh, that, that people feel comfortable going to. So Paul writes to his church as, you know, they're a smaller, newer group of only about 100 people. They have already started to form different divisions and groups and clubs and cliques within the community. Paul writes, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather, be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. The word here he uses for divisions is like a, a, a tearing apart, a, a, a ripping apart. He says, be united. And in Greek, this word for united is the, um, it's a medical term to, to heal or mend like a fracture. Uh, if we are um, broken apart, that's abnormal unhealthy. You know, it's not the natural state of things that needs to be mended uh, back together. 
Be united in thought and purpose. For some members of Chloe's house have told me about your quarrels, my dear brothers and sisters. Some of you are saying, I follow Paul. Others of you are saying, I am part of Apollos' group, or I'm the church of Peter. Or others say, I only follow Christ. They're really pulling out the spiritual card on that one. Has Christ been divided into fractions? Poor Jesus, he has to die, and then we tear up his body posthumously. Was I, Paul, crucified for you? Did Peter rise from the dead for you? Were any of you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course not. I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, for now no one can say they were baptized in my name. Yes, maybe I baptized someone else, don't quite remember. For Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the good news, and not with clever speech, for fear that the cross of Christ would lose its power. When I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan. For I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling. My message and my preaching were very simple, very plain, so that you would not trust in human wisdom but in the power of God. There are are four keys to Christian unity here that he talks about. The first one is treating our leaders appropriately. Peter and Paul and Paulus are great guys, great leaders. And folks, you know, they, they would have said, you know, maybe they heard Paul talk a little bit, but it never really caught until... Peter told them, you know, or maybe Chloe just, you know, pastored them and gave them so much hospitality and, you know, opened her home to them in tough times. They had good reasons to be loyal to these people who had shared the gospel with them, who had brought them to Jesus, who had pastored them through so much to say like, well, that's my pastor. That's the church. That's the community where I really learned to follow Jesus at. But Paul is not a perfect pastor. Peter and Apollos will do wrong stuff and let you down. I'm not a perfect pastor. This church will not be good enough for you. Jesus will be good in every way. So we treat our leaders appropriately, and we put all our hope on Jesus. And then secondly, Paul, Paul tells us here, you know, the fundamental equality of all believers. Paul is not promoting himself over Peter or Apollos. He is not, you know, even weighing pros and cons and saying like, well, Peter's right about this, but you should be careful about that. Or like Chloe's got, you know, these good points and these, these negatives. He's not even going there. The church in Acts was, was radically equal among believers. Jews, Gentiles, they promoted female leaders. They really valued uh, uh, the place of slaves and servants as contributing members in their co- community. They were equal because God doesn't play favorites with his kids. And if we're to be the family of God, we have to get the sibling dynamic down 
And then our relationship with the Father will be better when the sibling dynamic is handled. And then thirdly, um, key to Christian unity is that we understand what true spiritual wisdom is. True spiritual wisdom. You know, occasionally I'll have someone talk to me, um, you know, say like, oh, I left that church or, you know, they're looking for a new church. And then just tell me some things about, you know, their old church, you know. Well, that church, like, let me tell you, they were not very spiritual. They didn't even believe in the prophetic, or they really, they did not pray. Or like, you know, the pastor, he never even spoke on premillennialism versus amillennialism. I don't even know where most of the folks stood on eschatology. I feel like they expect me to say something like, Wow, I'm so glad that you got out of that. You are, you and I are way too spiritual to put up with that. We definitely are, are so much better and deserve more. Like, you just, you don't seem more spiritual. You seem less spiritual. The spiritual person sees the best in the church. The spiritual person like sees devotion, like people, you know, on Sunday morning prioritizing Jesus instead of New York Times and brunch, like, oh, that's great. And like sees prayer that they, they, they pray together. And, like, oh, that church reads the Bible. I love the Bible. The spiritual person sees the best. You can also be honest about hurt and, and failures and, and growth points. We see the good in the community of faith. And then, you know, lastly, we focus on the cross of Christ. The words of Jesus and the work of Jesus will always go beyond human divisions. Unity, unity will keep us close to Jesus and Jesus will keep us close to each other. If we move close to each other, we will find Jesus there, and Jesus will move us close to each other. Paul says, I would only speak about Christ and him crucified. He doesn't even, you know, primarily talk about the resurrected, you know, victorious, winning Jesus. He's talking primarily about the humble, broken, crucified God. And then, then your faith will not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Our unity is not under people, but under the Spirit of God. And Jesus, the crucified Jesus, shows us who God is. Last thought for today, and then worship team, you guys can come on up. Voltaire, he was a philosopher who talked a lot about religious questions. And, and he said, you know, if God didn't exist, we would have to invent him. We'd have to make him up. Humans need some higher power, some, some higher cause. Humans have indeed invented gods, Zeus, Hercules, idols that demanded sacrifice. But I think if Jesus Christ did not exist we would have never invented him. Who would have thought that, that billions of people would follow a crucified Jew? We do not have the story of Jesus because it was invented and, you know, my good opinion and our right idea. We do not have the story of Jesus because Paul and Peter pr promoted it well. 
We have the story of Jesus because it happened on an arid strip of land of the eastern shore of the Mediterranean. Jesus Christ was born in humble circumstances because he loved his people and wanted to be with them in the midst of messiness and brokenness through the worst of humanity, through sin and suffering, pain, rejection. Jesus wanted to be with us to into death and back into new life for us. This is the God we are united under. Not our own good ideas, but the power and wisdom of Jesus to bring us into new life. Let's stand together. As we move into a time of worship, let's just really pray. We have the opportunity in worship to just focus ourselves on Jesus, on what is true spiritual wisdom. But we also want to be united together in unity under the leadership of Jesus, of who he is. So Jesus, we ask today that if there are divisions in this church family, Jesus, breaking, ripping apart, that we would be humble members to be sewn back up together, Jesus. Jesus, would I yield to restoration and unifying? Would you bind us together, Jesus, in love? Jesus, where we have pride and uh, our strong opinions, I have been known to, to err in that way, Jesus, for which I am sorry. Jesus, would you put us in humility under your cross? And Jesus, as we enter into worship today, um, we are just in awe of who you are. Jesus, your ways are so much better than our best ideas. Your love is so much better, uh, so much healthier and more healing than our own approval or affirmation. Jesus, this morning, would you wrap us in your love? Instead of patting ourselves on the back, would we receive your embrace? Bind us together today, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.